Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the slow death of bipartisanship and civility in American politics and social discourse as hatred and division accelerates, stoked by Fox News and other far-right outlets, and led by the divider-in-chief, the head of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, who is running for the presidency again. Joining us to discuss the phony war against the woke, drag queens, and trans kids is Ian Haney-Lopez, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his path-breaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America. A former professor at Yale and Harvard Law Schools, he's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. We will discuss who benefits from having Americans at war with each other and how much the emboldened far right is pushing the country towards fascism. Then we'll examine the AUKUS deal on display yesterday in San Diego, where President Biden met with the UK and Australian Prime Ministers to create a new fleet of nuclear-powered submarines to counter the growing naval power of China in the Indo-Pacific region. Joining us to discuss the $368 billion Australian dollar investment, which has China warning the three nations that they are, quote, walking further and further down a path of error and danger, is Bonnie Glazer, Managing Director of the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific Forum, a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia, and a senior associate with the Pacific Forum. She was previously Director of the German Marshall Fund's Asia Program, Senior Advisor for Asia, and Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and has served as a consultant for various U.S. government offices, including the Departments of State, as well as a member of the Defense Department's Defense Policy China Panel in 1997. Then finally, we'll get an assessment of what China's diplomatic initiative in the Middle East, brokering the diplomatic re-engagement of bitter enemies Saudi Arabia and Iran, portends for this region from Juan Cole, a professor of modern Middle East and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at wankol.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. We will discuss his article and informed comment, Is China the New Indispensable Nation? Beijing brokers Iran-Saudi relations as U.S. and Israel are sidelined. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Ian Haney-Lopez, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America, a former professor at Yale and Harvard Law Schools. He's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ian Haney-Lopez. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of saving America, I just find it so heartbreaking in a way that so much of America is turning to hatred and division and cruelty towards trans people, you know, gay people that do drag shows, which, you know, I mean, there's a show on television, RuPaul, that's amusing. I mean, <laughs> why people are threatened by a bunch of people dressing up as Joan Crawford, I have no idea. But their leader is out there, and he is the most horrible human being. You'd have to scour America to find a worse human being than Donald Trump. He's just a horrible person. He has no friends. He has no empathy. He's cruel. He's hateful. He's stupid. He's a, been a catastrophe as a president. And here he is, the leader of the Republican Party. So is there, is there really hope for America? Uh, where, where are the better angels? And how do you extinguish this, this race towards hatred and division? Well, I think the way you frame your question actually is incredibly helpful. You start by saying Americans are... are descending into hatred and then segue to identifying Donald Trump as the leader of this movement. And I, I really want to emphasize the connection between those two. I think it's a big mistake to think that Americans are fundamentally a hate-filled people, fundamentally a racist people, fundamentally xenophobic or bigoted. I think the reality is otherwise. We're a people that hold to egalitarian ideals, but that also have deeply internalized fears and resentments. And we, for 50 years, have been pushed by a political leadership class funded by dark money billionaires, reactionary billionaires, to stoke the worst impulses in America, to turn to fear and hatred, to turn to culture wars against people of color, against immigrants, against trans people, more recently against wokeism, to turn to these culture war hatreds of each other while the moneyed elite laughs all the way to the bank. And, and I think that, that if we start with that analysis, that the hatred tearing America apart is not reflective of something intrinsically wrong with Americans, but is something that reflects the deep cynicism, the demagoguery, the despicable character of a leadership class and of reactionary billionaires who fund them, then I think, perversely, that is hopeful because the hope resides in all of us recognizing that there's a set of our leaders who intentionally dividing and tearing us apart, and that that means not only as a, as a moral matter, but as a pragmatic matter, 
we need to build relationships, build humanity, build power across these lines of difference, see our linked fate, repudiate these despicable demagogues, and build the country that we want for our children and for the lives of everybody in our community. Well, Ian Haney Lopez, in a way, what you've just said is encapsulated by what we're learning from the Dominion voting systems court filings about Fox News and how it operates. And it, in effect, Rupert Murdoch is at the pinnacle of what you're talking about because they clearly have made it a business decision that telling the truth is bad for business. They're concerned about their stock price more than any kind of sense of social responsibility. And in effect, they are a den of lying liars who lie about a liar. And make millions and billions doing so. I think that's so. So I think there's two lessons from sort of uh, the Dominion voting system lawsuit and all the revelations coming out about Fox. One is that for the life of Fox News under Rupert Murdoch, it has been the leading blade of class warfare waged through culture war politics and racial resentment. And this this applies to the sort of billionaire owners, but it applies to the millionaire shills like Tucker Carlson, who are on there spewing stuff that they know to be divisive, hate-filled crap, but they do so because it's their brand. It's how they make money. It's how they satisfy their audience and their and their advertisers. Right. So so this goes back to this these are really despicable people who, in pursuit of their own material interests, in pursuit of their own power, and here's what makes them despicable, because we, we pursue our interests, we try and make money, but do we do so by sowing hatred, by telling lies, by intentionally pushing our neighbors and friends to fear and hate each other? That's what's despicable is the strategy. So that's one thing. That's who these people are. But here's the other thing. And in a sense, this is a little more frightening. They, too, are trapped now, just like the Republican Party, in a call and response with an audience that has been primed to expect and now demands hate-filled conspiracy theories that demonize their fellow Americans. That I think is probably the most important lesson coming out of this. Not not that Fox News and its and its shills are uh, cynical puppets for the billionaire class. We knew that. What we see now is that Fox News can't get free of Trump because they've succeeded too well, and that they themselves are in a sense trapped by their success. If they tried to speak reasonably, speak honestly to their base, their base would turn to other people willing to fill that demagogic uh, sphere. And this is exactly what's happened with the Republican Party, the so-called Trumpification of the party. Ron DeSantis is no improvement over Donald Trump. He made the decision when he first began running for office that he would imitate Donald Trump as a strategy for gaining power. Same with J.D. Vance. Same with Josh Hawley. These are despicable folks 
who are imitating what they know is despicable behavior on the basis of Donald Trump, but they're willing to do so as the route to power, while also recognizing that if they were to stand on their principles, if they were to honor what comes closer to their actual values, they'd lose in a Republican Party. Throw Nikki Haley into that mix too, right? Like these are, where are the responsible, the formerly moderate Republicans? They're running for their lives because the GOP for 50 years has been engaged in culture war politics and has succeeded in radicalizing its base, the primary voters in the in the GOP races. And that means that Fox News, like the GOP, they've lost control of the monster they've unleashed. So can they rewrite history, though, with over 40,000 hours of internal capital footage uh, from the January 6th uh, riot that Kevin McCarthy gave to Tucker Carlson. There's a huge effort underway and now and on the House you've got hearings chaired by Loudermilk, who was one of the congressmen that led the insurrectionists on the tour the day before on January the 5th. He's he- having a hearing and Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's going to be visiting the insurrectionists that are in prison. I mean, is it possible? We all saw what happened on January the 6th, but they're going to try and gaslight us and rewrite history all to serve Donald Trump's narrative. Can it work? Sure. That's one of the frightening lessons, not just of our era, but of the 1930s. We learned in the 1930s that political propaganda spread through means of mass communication is incredibly dangerous in any sort of a liberal political system. It's not a question of facts. People struggle with facts, honestly. People connect with stories. And those stories can sometimes be, well, those stories are the frames they use to interpret facts. And those stories can sometimes be utterly, utterly cynically false. That's what we mean by propaganda. It's these alternate stories that are pushed onto the people um, by these particular interests, by political elites, by corporations. You push propaganda, and then that gives people a story through which they interpret events in ways that can run directly contrary to reality. The thing we know about propaganda is it works especially well with mass means of communication. And if that were true in the 1930s, it's on hyperdrive in the 2020s, because now it's not just radio, it's not just TV, it's social media, and even more than social media, it's the mass data algorithms that collect information about people and then especially target people with conspiracy theories and lies and fears specifically geared to outrage those individuals, right? This is the danger we face. Now, I think two things are are true here. One is 
the best antidote to bad speech is more speech. We 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 need Democrats holding he hearings. We need radio programs like this saying this is what's happening. We need to push back. That is true, and it is also true that you need effective, robust government regulation of mass media because mass media is so specially dangerous. And we had that in the 1930s, having learned the lesson of the success of Nazi propaganda, having seen some of the dangers of mass populism in the United States over radio, we as a country adopted policies that required fairness in news and for public broadcasting. The Ronald Reagan administration did away with those fairness requirements, and it's precisely because they did away with those fairness requirements that you can have the outrageous behavior of Fox News. And the only check we have on Fox News is not government regulators saying, hey, you can't consistently lie to your audience. I mean, think about the, think about the irony of the situation. It's this private company, Dominion Voting System, that has to launch a private lawsuit and perhaps through a libel law, we'll be able to rein in Fox News, but nobody's saying, where's government? Why isn't government regulating these folks? They're so dangerous. They're knowingly lying to the American public while wrapping themselves in the mantle of fair and balanced. Government should be regulating the heck out of these people, but it's not because in the Reagan administration, that political party, that political impulse got rid of the fairness doctrine in mass media. Yes, we need more speech. We need to respond to this sort of dangerous and divisive baloney. But we also need government to get serious. That is to say the Democratic Party to get serious about re-regulating mass media, including social media and big data. What's the connection then between what we're talking about, Ian Henny Lopez, and the emergence of overt fascism in the United States? Just yesterday, over the weekend, in fact, in a small town in Ohio, there were demonstrations against drag shows. And these Nazis showed up. They were in Nazi uniforms, having Nazi flags. They had all wearing red jackets, and they were doing the Nazi salute and shouting in unison, Sieg Hail, Sieg Hail, and then they were also chanting, Stop Weimar, Stop Weimar, meaning the Weimar Republic that preceded uh, the Nazi takeover, which they believe is we're in the Weimar now, that Joe Biden is the, the head of the Weimar Republic. I mean, I know it's just a small group in, o in Ohio, but there's so much manifesting, and particularly in this new radical right-wing house, I mean, they had a hearing yesterday on the origins of COVID, and they they had an expert witness the Republicans brought forth, this guy, Nicholas Wade, who wrote a book on the biology of race that was completely racist and condemned by all of his peers, many of whom felt that they had been misquoted in his book. So there's something going on. You know, Trump brought these people out from under a rock with his racist attacks on the Bertha conspiracy, which then enabled, you know, basically gave them a, a free pass to be racist again. And that's what all this anti-wokeism is about. They don't like the idea that you can't use horrible hate speech, but now they've legitimized it. And now you've got a candidate running on anti-wokeness uh, who's 
probably going to be the Republican nominee, the dreadful little fascist from uh, Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis. I've long been one of those scholars who has warned against using inflammatory language like fascism. And yet, I think now in 2023, we need to recover that language and we need to really think through what fascism was, what fascism is, how it arose, how in some countries it came to power and how in other countries it was defeated. I think the core of fascism is the idea that the country is beset by internal enemies and that because the country is under threat internally, liberal democracy cannot be trusted, that liberal democracy is actually dangerous given the numbers of internal enemies. That's one core part of it. The other core part of it is the idea that the state will organize both society and the marketplace in this vertical hierarchical fashion, and that the state will provide moral instruction on the appropriate way to live your life, and also that the state will organize the appropriate level of relationships between corporations and labor, including unions. Both of these elements are consolidating right now in the United States. Honestly, I'm less worried about the, you know, Nazi reenactors. I'm more worried about the 60% of Americans who say that to protect their group, they're willing to sacrifice democratic norms. Why are people saying that now? I think because for 50 years, the right has been telling its followers, you're under threat from other Americans. They might be gangbangers, they might be illegal aliens, they might be welfare queens, they might be terrorists, they might be feminists, intent on abortion for any reason, they might be gay people, they might be trans people. But the basic message from the right is America is beset by internal enemies who will take power from the true Americans and will destroy this country. And more recently, you've had this development, both in terms of morality in the marketplace, in which portraying themselves as populists, you have Republican leaders like Ron DeSantis and Josh Hawley, the, the uh, Republican majority in Texas, that's going after corporations themselves, saying corporations are excessively woke and corporations need to be reined in, that the state should set the limits of appropriate corporate behavior in addition to appropriate behavior of members of our society, that trans people should not be recognized at all, should even be eliminated to use that incredibly frightening term, that racial justice should cease to be discussed 
except in the most celebratory terms in our schools. This is what we mean when we say there's a dramatic, treacherous, frightening turn towards modern fascism. And now, when we think about where fascism succeeds and where it fails, one of the core insights is that fascism succeeded when the center-right, the center-right failed to stand up to the extreme-right, where the center-right looked at this growing anti-democratic totalitarian politics, and I say totalitarian, not authoritarian, totalitarian. This is the idea that fascism seeks to organize both everybody's individual lives and also the marketplace under the authority of the state. When the center-right looks at that totalitarian far-right and says, well, these people are generating a lot of energy, we could ride their coattails, and, but yet ultimately control them. And that's what happened in Germany. And what you saw was the far right very quickly slipping the control of the center right, winning just barely, and then using their authority through legal means to legally destroy democracy, to legally install fascism. And when I say legally, I don't mean legal in the moral sense. I mean legal in the technical legislative sense, using the very means of legislation and executive power in a liberal country to install fascism. When fascism has been stopped, it's because the center right has seen the threat of the extremism on the far right and has made common cause with who they're traditionally uh, see as their opponents, that is, when the corporations make common cause with unions, when uh, conservatives make common cause with liberals and say, the very fate of our countries is hanging by a thread here. We'll go back to disagreeing in a decade or two, but right now we have to join together. Who is the center right in the United States? Right now, it's no longer the Republican Party. As I mentioned earlier, the Republican Party has been almost entirely co-opted with a, a few notable exceptions. The, the Republican Party has been almost entirely dragged to the far right. The center right today is corporate America. And the question that corporate America needs to ask itself, and honestly, the question that all of us in the country need to be asking of corporate America is, do you see the threat that people like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, uh, that Ron DeSantis, that Donald Trump pose, you might think they're going to win elections, I can give them some donations, maybe I'll have some influence. But if those people come to power in our country, we will descend rapidly into a fascist totalitarian country that regulates from the point of view of the corporations, the way the marketplace works, who, who wins and who loses will be decided not by marketplace competition, but by who has the favor of the tyrants in power. And from all the rest of our perspective, those folks are incredibly dangerous when they talk about eliminating internal enemies. Because the truth is, 
the majority of Americans fall on the list of the supposed internal enemies. This is the moment when the responsibility, the fate of the country depends not just on Democrats and unions and churches. It really depends on corporate America seeing clearly the dire threat we're confronting right now. Well, Ian Haney-Lopez, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ian Haney-Lopez, who's Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America, a former professor at Yale and Harvard Law Schools. He's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Been Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the AUKUS deal on display yesterday in San Diego where President Biden met with the UK and Australian Prime Ministers to create a new fleet of nuclear power submarines to counter the growing naval power of China in the Indo-Pacific region. Here comes Dick, he's wearing a skirt here comes Jane, you know she's sporting the chain. Same hair evolution, same build evolution. Tomorrow who's gonna fuss? And they love each other so androgynous. Closer than you know, love each other so. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bonnie Glazer, the Managing Director of the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific Program, a non-resident fellow with the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia, and a senior associate with the Pacific Forum. She was previously Director of the German Marshall Fund's Asia Program, Senior Advisor for Asia, and the Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and has served as a consultant for various U.S. government offices, including the Department of State, as well as a member of the Defense Department's Defense Policy Board China panel in 1997. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bonnie Glazer. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Bonnie. And it seems like a day doesn't go by without relationship between uh, the U.S. and China uh, getting more and more tense. And yesterday, the Prime Ministers of Australia, the U.K., and President Biden met in, in San Diego to launch the AUKUS Pact, or it's actually underway, but at least to clarify what it involves. And this is preceded, of course, by incidents like the spy balloon and a U.S. general talking about a war with China happening within the next couple of years. How do you see that in that context, that the two nations are sort of talking past each other? And we know, of course, that there hasn't been really any contact uh, since Secretary of State Blinken cancelled the trip due to the so-called spy balloon. Well, the U.S.-China relationship uh, has definitely become more acrimonious. Tensions have been increasing. Uh, there is the possibility now talk of a phone call between 
President uh, Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping. The Chinese have been internally focused for a couple of weeks on the meetings that they hold in the spring of every year for, to install new, new government leaders. Uh, the Chinese uh, have been observing the AUKUS uh, program closely as it has been evolving, and um, they're very unhappy with what they see as the uh, formation of anti-China coalitions, uh, which is uh, what they call AUKUS, AUKUS, and also what they call the Quad. Um, they see these as what they call these small small circles um, U.S. allies and partners who are working together to contain China's rise and to uh, prevent China from uh, closing the gap with advanced uh, countries like the United States uh, in technology. Uh, but this program, and AUKUS in particular, is really irritating to the Chinese because it demonstrates that Australia is so concerned about the growing Chinese challenge to security in the region that it wants to contribute to preserving a free and open Indo-Pacific. It wants to contribute to deterrence, uh, potentially in contingencies involving uh, a Chinese attack on the Taiwan Strait, although of course nobody talks about that explicitly. That is the really the most dangerous flashpoint that I think everybody's worried about. And the Chinese Foreign Ministry on Tuesday accused Australia, the UK, and the United States of, quote, walking further and further down the path of error and danger. And prior to that, China's UN mission had also accused the Western allies of setting back um, nuclear nonproliferation because of Australia's declared non-nuclear nation. And President Biden uh, yesterday made it clear that Australia continues its proud tradition of being non-nuclear in terms of nuclear weapons, but this deal, of course, involves nuclear propulsion. So what's your sense then of Taiwan as a flashpoint? If you go back to Henry Kissinger and company that started the opening with China, the deal seems to have been that we just don't talk about it. And lately you've had visits from uh, Nancy Pelosi and then followed by other congressional delegations. So What's the solution there? Is it is it still viable to try and sort of not talk about it because it's becoming clearly a flashpoint? Well, it's not viable not to talk about it, but more importantly, uh, I think that actions need to be taken in order to strengthen deterrence and uh, really ensure that Xi Jinping wakes up every morning and says, today's not the day that I'm going to risk using force uh, against Taiwan and instead rely on peaceful means. As it is, even though the Chinese haven't used kinetic force uh, against Taiwan, they are using coercion on a daily basis in the form of military pressure and uh, economic coercion. They have poached uh, eight of Taiwan's diplomatic partners since Taiwan's president uh, Tsai Ing-wen was elected in 2016. And of course, they engage in cyber attacks and disinformation. So uh, I think, you know, bolstering Taiwan's uh, security is something uh, that the world needs to do, not to promote it, to go independent. And uh, as the Chinese would say, you know, that's their bottom line is the permanent separation of Taiwan from China. Uh, but I think that we need to create an environment in which 
China realizes that the only way to uh, to address these issues are is really through peaceful means and not uh, not coercive means and certainly not through the use of force. And the United States needs other countries to send that signal to China as well. Uh, and Australia is one of the countries uh, that has stepped up and been willing uh, to uh, really demonstrate that they have a an abiding interest in the preservation of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And they've done everything they can to make this deal as transparent as possible and invited China for briefings, which China has not accepted. So how do the Australians navigate the fact that China is their biggest trading partner at the same time. You know, we've had the wolf warrior kind of uh, tensions from China's more assertive and aggressive diplomacy. The Australians initially, back at the beginning of COVID, suggested there should be some international investigation. The Chinese had a hissy fit and and, and then slapped um, trade sanctions on Australia. And when you turn back to Taiwan, of course, Taiwan's economy, the world's biggest chip maker, there's also, you know, Foxconn is a Chinese company that uh, builds Apple iPhones in China. So what's your sense then, Bonnie Glazer, of the, the kind of lobbies within China itself between the kind of more militaristic and nationalistic lobby that seems to have captured Xi Jinping, who comes out of that kind of military world in any case, and he's not a particularly educated person, and he has a degree in ideology. And yet you have uh, his new premier, who seems to be a big supporter of, of entrepreneurship. So where do you see China in that sort of bifurcation between, are there competing forces, or how do you see it? Well, I see Xi Jinping as large and in charge, and I don't think that we should understand China as a as a group of interest groups that are vying for Xi Jinping's uh, attention and favorable policies. Um, it's not a democracy, it's an autocratic regime, and anybody who is in a position of power in China, including the new premier, is there because Xi Jinping put him there and put all the other new individuals that he installed at the 20th Party Congress, as well as in the re recent National People's uh, Congress uh, in, in these new positions. Uh, so this is very much Xi Jinping's agenda, uh, his ambitions, which of course, when he first came to power, which was in late 2012, he uh, said that China should become a, uh, a great nation. It should uh, it, it restore its country to greatness. He called this the Chinese dream. But of course, all of his predecessors have had the aspiration of restoring China to its greatness. This dream of national rejuvenation has been around a long time. But Xi Jinping wants to put China on an irreversible path toward that by the middle of this century. He has, for the first time, attached a, a, a target date to achieving national rejuvenation. And he has said that um, achieving reunification with Taiwan is a requirement for restoring China to greatness. And this is one of the reasons why there is more alarm. You combine what he has said rhetorically with the steps that he has taken to uh, develop the military capabilities to seize and control Taiwan, and you have a potential major crisis 
Uh, this is why people, I think, in the United States and elsewhere are thinking about how maybe within the coming decade, we could see a major war. So in terms, though, of the entwined economies of the United States and China, do you think that there's going to be some decoupling happening here? I mean, what's your guess on whether or not China is going to start more overtly supporting Russia in Ukraine? And that's going to have reaction from both the United States and from Western Europe and the NATO countries. Again, Germany's biggest trading partner, again, is China. So is this heading into a situation where before you have a military cold war, you're going to have an economic war? Well, I don't think that any country wants to completely cut off trade uh, with China, certainly not the United States or Germany. Uh, when people in the U.S. talk about decoupling, they're really talking about selective decoupling. And these days, the focus is on advanced technology. Uh, this really started to be put into practice uh, in October of last year when the Biden administration imposed export controls on uh, semiconductors to China. And now Japan and the Netherlands have gotten on board and Taiwan. And it will be very difficult, I think, for China to close the gap in semiconductor design and manufacturing uh, going forward. There's now talk about extending those export controls to quantum computing and uh, to artificial intelligence. This will be more challenging uh, because there are many more countries involved uh, than just a, a handful. So people talk about small gardens, high fences, not uh, cutting off trade. As to your question about will China overtly support Russia, I think China has been very careful since the February 24th invasion of Ukraine to not uh, uh, take a a very clear side uh, with Russia or provide Russia with lethal aid in the war. Um, China claims it's neutral, but it's really not. It's a pro-Russian neutrality. The Chinese don't want Russia uh, to lose, to be defeated in this war. Uh, but the costs of providing assistance to Russia that would prompt sanctions on China, and that's just too costly for China. So they will continue to purchase more energy and provide assistance to Russia where they can help Russia's economy, but not in a way that would spur sanctions. So uh, we are seeing some semiconductors, for example, or surge in semiconductor exports going from, uh, from China to Russia. We're about to see a very important uh, visit by Xi Jinping to Moscow. This will be his 40th meeting with Vladimir Putin. Um, and that relationship continues to tighten. The uh, cooperation between them in a, a whole range of fields, especially uh, their military exercises, um, is, is on, the, on the upswing. And there should be, I think, a great deal of attention being paid to where this relationship is going to go. Surely it's not a relationship of no limits. There's always been limits to the Russia-China relationship, but the way in which they cooperate will be consequential for the interests of the West. So Bonnie, just in the last minute then, what was your impression of the brokering of the peace deal, not a peace deal, but at least the restoration of diplomatic ties between bitter enemies, Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran by China. A lot of people think that that is a very a portent of, of a more aggressive 
diplomacy around the world. And of course, we know, for example, over Ukraine, there's very little support in the global south for the US position supporting Ukraine against Russia. And I'm sure there's a lot more appeal in terms of China's economic engagement and it's uh, the way it's conducted this brokering of this diplomatic deal between these two bitter enemies. What's your take on it? I think it comes as a bit of a surprise. Uh, China obviously recognized that there was an opening, an opportunity, because if Saudi Arabia and Iran had not been favorably disposed to to, uh, settling some of their differences and signing this agreement, it wouldn't have happened. So it was a bit perhaps opportunistic, but it does show that China is going to become more and more active in its diplomacy and seek to compete with the United States around the world. We are already competing in China's backyard, in Southeast Asia, in the Pacific Islands. Uh, The Chinese are trying to woo Europe away from the United States. Uh, And of course, the global South has been uh, an area where there's been greater competition. The Middle East has not been um, an area where China has been very actively involved, but that is obviously changing. And uh, this is a global competition now between the United States and China. And I think that we will see perhaps more surprises coming from China in the future to demonstrate that their initiatives, like the Global Security Initiative and the Global Development Initiative that Xi Jinping put forward yet last year, are superior to the governance uh, that the United States and other Western countries uh, would like to see prevail um, in the international order. Well, Bonnie Glazer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you much for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Bonnie Glazer, who's the Managing Director of the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific Program and a non-resident fellow with the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia, and a senior associate with the Pacific Forum. She was previously Director of the German Marshall Fund's Asia Program, Senior Advisor for Asia and Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and has served as a consultant for various U.S. government offices, including the Department of State, as well as a member of the Defense Department's Defense Policy Board China Panel in 1997. We're going to take a brief station break back with an assessment of what China's diplomatic initiative in the Middle East, brokering the diplomatic re-engagement of bitter enemies Saudi Arabia and Iran, portends for the region. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com, and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. He has an article at Informed Comment, is China the new indispensable nation? Beijing brokers Iran-Saudi relations as U.S. and Israel are sidelined. Welcome to Background Briefing, Juan Cole. Thank you, Ian. So, Juan, uh, China has obviously made commercial and diplomatic inroads into Africa, but now that they brokered this re-engagement of diplomacy and, and diplomatic recognition 
between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Do you think that's going to go further in the Middle East? I mean, obviously, the contrast between the U.S.'s recent engagement in the Middle East has cost, what, something like $8 trillion, uh, which you might as well dig a hole in the sand and dump $8 trillion. It's just caused nothing but misery. So China has, has extensive trade relations with Iran already and growing relations with Saudi Arabia and Iran, particularly in terms of importing oil. So do you see this as the beginning of, in a way that China has made inroads into Africa? Uh, will the same happen in the Middle East? Yes, I, I think that's right, Ian. Uh, and I, I think it's already beginning to some extent. Uh, the Middle East is extremely important to China, as you say, now that they have gone off of their uh, no-COVID policy and are opening back up their economy. There's going to be a, a big rise in demand for uh, for petroleum in particular, because that fuels their trucks and uh, automobiles. Uh, and um, as you say, uh, China has defied the United States uh, embargo on uh, Iranian petroleum sales, uh, which doesn't really have any standing in international law. Of course, it's simply a, a unilateral U.S. threat to sanction people who do business with uh, Iran. But the Iranians uh, send the petroleum to uh, to South China near Shanghai in uh, uh, you know vessels flagged by other countries, and uh, they turn off their transponders so they can't be seen on satellite. And uh, those small re refineries in South China are domestic, and they don't do international business. So the Treasury Department can't really do anything to them. Uh, Reuters estimates that Iran may be selling as much as 800,000 barrels a day to uh, China in this way. Uh, and uh, and then uh, about a third of China's petroleum uh, supply comes from Saudi Arabia. And Iran and Saudi Arabia have been at daggers drawn for some years uh, over uh, Syria, over uh, Yemen, uh, over security issues in the region. And uh, it has become a problem for the Saudis uh, of insecurity. In fact, in 2019, uh, a major Saudi refinery and oil complex, uh, Abqaiq, was hit by drones that either originated in Iran or uh, were operated by Iranian proxies uh, in, in the Middle East and uh, knocked uh, about half of uh, Saudi's oil production off offline for, uh, for a week or so. Uh, and uh, so th this is the need to improve relations with Iran was there. Uh, China could broker this deal because they have good relations with both countries. The United States could not. The United States was useless. Uh, it has uh, isolated itself from uh, that part of the Middle East by, uh, by these uh, maximum pressure sanctions that uh, Trump put on, uh, on, on Iran and which Biden has kept. So given that the contrast is pretty stark between how much treasure and lives the U.S. lost in the Middle East for no gain whatsoever, as opposed to China's growing trading relationship with both countries. That is itself is pretty depressing. But tell us about what was happening then back in the Trump administration when there was much celebration over killing Soleimani, the head of the Quds force. 
who was visiting Iraq to apparently meet with the Iraqi prime minister in Baghdad on January the 2nd of 2020 to pursue the very same negotiations between Iran and Saudi Arabia that the Chinese just pulled off. Exactly. Uh, These negotiations between Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, have been going on for uh, uh, some three years. And, uh, you know, the the two countries had cut off diplomatic relations. So they didn't have a uh, an obvious channel to talk to one another. And uh, Baghdad uh, is close to Iran, but has correct relations with Saudi Arabia and, and initially offered itself as a venue for these uh, negotiations. And the Iraqi prime minister at the time invited uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, the head of the uh, of the Quds Brigades, as you say, of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, to Iraq, uh, to Baghdad, to uh, negotiate uh, with, with, with uh, Baghdad as the intermediary, indirectly with the uh, Saudis, uh, to perhaps restore relations. And uh, Soleimani would have had a, a great deal of credibility uh, in that role. Uh, and uh, when he arrived at Baghdad International Airport, he was uh, rocketed to death uh, by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, even even Senator Lindsey Graham, who is a, a hawk, had cautioned uh, Trump against doing such a thing uh, because it would uh, escalate uh, tensions with uh, Iran to a new level. Uh, But Trump uh, blew Soleimani away. And I think in the aftermath, the Saudis decided that if the United States was going to behave in this erratic way, uh, that uh, they they needed some other superpower uh, to step in and uh, back up the negotiations that had begun in Baghdad uh, and and take over. And and that was the role that Beijing played. And, and, And mind you, when Soleimani was blown away by, by Trump, uh, Trump announced and the, the, the people in his administration, like Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, announced that Soleimani had, become, had been coming to Iraq to kill Americans. Uh, and uh, the, the U.S. news uh, apparatus just bought this. You saw it on CNN and other channels that uh, he had been coming to kill Americans. He came to Iraq on a diplomatic passport. His name was on the passenger manifest. Uh, there was nothing covert about this visit, and uh, and it wasn't anything to do with the United States. It was it was to uh, begin a rapprochement with, with Saudi Arabia, and the United States not only wasn't helpful, but it 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 killed Soleimani and set back this process uh, for, for some time. So the one thread that's left for the U.S. in that neighborhood is the so-called Abram Accords, which were brokered by Jared Kushner, who was essentially Netanyahu's stenographer. And then he got a $2 billion payoff as a result. But that seems to be going nowhere, not the least of which is that the new initiative with China has sort of left Netanyahu high and dry. And he's got his own problems with massive demonstrations by Israeli citizens against his attempt to take control of the Supreme Court and his authoritarian direction that Netanyahu is taking Israel in in the way that his mentor, Viktor Orban, has taken Hungary. So what's your assessment then of where that stands, the Abram Accords? Because I don't see the Saudis making that deal as things are getting worse and worse with the Palestinians. I, I suspect we're going to 
have a new intifada before we know it. Uh, well, you're not wrong. Uh, the, the tensions on the occupied Israeli-occupied Palestinian West Bank are uh, are very high, uh, and anything could happen. Uh, I think the the issue with the Abraham Accords is that they were purely transactional. You know, one of the countries that signed on to them was the United Arab Emirates, uh, which had never in any significant way been at, at war with Israel, uh, although it was a member of the Arab League. Uh, and uh, the Israelis and, and, the, uh, and the Emiratis wanted to exchange technology of various sorts. And uh, uh, they're both countries with a lot of startups that could benefit from this relationship. So uh, th there was no reason for the Emirates not to do this. Uh, and uh, Bahrain joined in. It's a set of small islands in the Persian Gulf that um, are claimed uh, occasionally by Iranian politicians and uh, uh, as part of Iran. And, and the, the monarchy is Sunni in Bahrain and has a Shia majority of whom they're afraid. And so Bahrain, you know, will cling to any uh, any skirt uh, uh, hem that will that will give it some some uh, distance from Iran, some protection from Iran. Uh, and so uh, this uh, lining up with Israel against Iran made a lot of sense for Bahrain. And and what Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the Prime Minister of Israel would like. Uh, is uh, to have a, an Israel-slash-Arab alliance against Iran uh, so that if hostilities did break out, uh, Israel would have Arab allies uh, who were closer to, to Iran and, and who are, frankly, bigger in population uh, and who also feel a sense of enmity towards Iran. Uh, and um, Netanyahu thinks that neither the Palestine issue nor democracy would matter if only you could get uh, that kind of strategic alliance uh, with Saudi Arabia and other Arab states against Iran, uh, and if at the same time you could pursue the, the Emirati policy of melding Israeli technology and, and, and startup know-how with, uh, with uh, Arab oil money. Uh, and so that vision uh, was dealt a real blow by this uh, uh, diplomatic uh, coup by by China, and that tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia seem likely to subside rather than increase, and that that's Netanyahu has openly said that that's bad for him. He's uh, uh, attacked the Biden administration for being weak and letting this happen. Uh, interestingly enough, Netanyahu's political enemies, like Benny Gantz, have have blamed Netanyahu for. Uh, 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 for this development, but every the, the the politicians in Israel universally agree that 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 Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, making up is is bad for Israel. Israel would benefit from from tensions in the region instead. Yes, in the in the last minute, of course, as long as the ultra nationalists and the settler movement are the tail that wags the dog of of Netanyahu's administration, as tenuous as it is. There's no way that the Saudis are going to make a deal selling out the Palestinians. I think that's absolutely right. And especially uh, King Salman is still uh, there and uh, he's the king. And uh, he has made it very clear that, that he won't throw the Palestinians under the bus. So his son, I think, has fewer principles, but uh, 
for the moment, I, I think that's exactly right. Well, Juan Cole, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle East and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And he has an article at Informed Comment, Is China the New Indispensable Nation? Beijing brokers Iran-Saudi relations as U.S. and Israel are sidelined. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more light goes out in the middle.